A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected and to episode three of our special series on homeschooling. Now, we've got lots in store for you today. Um, Well, it's actually just me, uh, James Daybell. Sam is across town. We're going to be doing something on the history of soap tomorrow, uh, but you will have to put up with me uh, for today. Uh, Flying solo once again. The aim of today's episode is all about history projects. History projects for kids. Now, there are three things I'm going to be talking to you about. The first I mentioned in our very first episode, the introduction to homeschooling. And this was an oral history project. So I've had time to think about this more carefully. And I've come up with a questionnaire and an approach and something that everybody could do, not just not just children, adults as well. It's your time to shine, your time to be historians. The second thing that I'm going to talk about is producing a historical model, a historical model of a, of a house. And the aim with this is to do something very practical, but you need a shoebox for it. And you need to think about your own house and the different rooms in the house and how people move around the rooms at different times of the day and then compare that with a historic house, a house in historic time. The example I am going to give you is one that I've done with a colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Professor, Professor, I've demoted him, Professor Daniel Maudlin at the University of Plymouth and we did a brilliant educational project with the wonderful uh, Powderham Castle, uh, where you built a shoebox of one of the rooms in the castle. And I'm going to tell you all about that. The third thing, the third project, is actually to have a go at doing histories of the unexpected yourself. Now, this is something our wonderful friends at Devonport High School for Boys and their teachers there have been doing. uh, And Sam and I have been involved in this and really interested to see the wonderful work that they've been doing and we thought that we would share this with you guys as something to do but as promised yesterday I thought what I'd do was start uh, with a little snippet little tidbit from one of our other books uh, Histories of the Unexpected the Romans and I promised you to talk about fattening dormice because this was something of a thing in ancient Rome. Dormice were absolutely everywhere. People had them running around the house, all over the place, and they became an absolute delicacy. And potters created 
little conical pots, uh, rather like those of you who know about rhubarb forces, so which are sort of round um, pots that would be you'd use to cover rhubarb, so the rhubarb would grow much more quickly in the dark. It was exactly the same with dormice. And what you would do, you would catch your dormice and then you'd put them inside this pot so that they were in the dark. And then these pots were very clever. Uh, archaeological examples of these survive. And they had a little lid that could be put upon uh, on top and then which would keep it completely dark and then there would be seeds and food that could be fed in to the dormice and the dormouse would sit there in the dark eating it and growing very fat. Now you may wonder why this obsession of the Romans with dormice. You think about mice running around nowadays, who the on earth would want to eat a mouse? But in actual fact for the Romans it was something of a delicacy because if you think about fattening other kinds of animals, if you think about fattening pigs, it's actually quite easy to do. All you do is give them a load of food and they just eat and slowly get fat. But with dormice, it's something more difficult than that. You know, first of all, you have to catch them. And rather like fattening little birds or fattening other little animals, it's quite difficult. And so in actually taking the time and attention and care in fattening mice like this, you are actually showing to your dinner guests that you are actually a very important person and offering them a mice, a mouse, a dormouse to eat, fattened, uh, was very, showed you in, in, in very good light. And there are instructions about these fattening jars. There's a Roman writer called Varro and he writes, they are fattened in jars which many people keep even inside the villa. The potters make these jars in a very different form from other jars as they run channels along the sides and make a hollow for holding the food. In such a jar, acorns, walnuts or chestnuts are placed. And when a cover is placed over the jars, they grow fat in the dark. Now, we also have other um, interesting documents that survive that tell us an awful lot about these, the, about the use of these um, these mice for opulent very extravagant tables and they were seen very much as a as a delicacy as i said and there's a re recipe book that survives that recommends that the dormouse is stuffed with a force meat of pork and small pieces of dormouse meat trimmings all pounded with pepper nuts and broth and that you should put the dormouse in an earthen earthen casserole roast it in the oven or boil it in the stock pot. And they also talk about the delicacy of roasting and braising them having been rolled, the plump dormouse having been rolled in honey and poppy seeds. When you are sitting down to tuck in to uh, your, your dinner uh, this evening, uh, just think about what it would have been like uh, to eat fattened dormice. Uh, absolutely delicious. Okay, so Enough of fattening Roman dormice. I wanted to get on and tell you about some of the exciting history projects that you could get up to during this time when school is out. And one of the first ones I wanted to tell you about was oral history. This is how you become budding young or old historians and record your own family histories. And I think 
this is really important because not only does it develop in you the skills of the historian, but also what I'd like you to do is to interview your grandparents. And this is very important at this time when people of your grandparents' age are being asked to stay inside. It's a great way of you all being in touch with them, keeping contact with them, making sure that they don't get too lonely, particularly if you've got a grandparent who's who's living alone, I think regular contact with them. And this actually gives you a really interesting way of communicating with them. And also, historically, it's fascinating because what you will get in talking to them is a sense of what it was like to live in the past. You may have grandparents who are old enough to remember the Second World War. So if you talk to them about that, you'll be able to understand what it was like during the Second World War. And in fact, as historians, historians who work on the 20th century, where actually people who, who experienced the past, first-hand past events, they are a brilliant source for historians to use to know what it was like. Now, obviously, people's memories sometimes play tricks on them. People don't remember things as accurately as possible. But if we, if we take that as given, you actually have a first-hand account of somebody who has lived in the past. So if we're thinking about what you should do, the first thing to think about is who might you interview? And I've said that, you know, you might interview a grandparent. Uh, you, if you've got a great grandparent, even better, um, you might in interview um, uh, a great aunt. If you don't have any aged, um, if you don't have any aged relatives, then perhaps uh, somebody who is, is old that you know, who's a friend of the family and that you have contact with would be brilliant. Then what you want to think about is is the kinds of questions you want to ask them. And these are, you know, can be categorised as who, what, where, why, when. Think about all of those questions. It might be that if you are thinking about understanding the Second World War, you might say a question might be, what did you think of rationing? Um, uh, did you think it was awful? What kinds of things did you you know, could you not get hold of very easily? Um, you also might think of a series of other good questions um, relating to the Second World War. You know, what kind of job did you do during the war? What did you do during the war? Um, what did it feel like putting on a gas mask? What were your clothes like? What's your strongest memory of the war? Were you frightened? What was an air raid shelter like? How did you feel when war was over. What was that time like? You may not have grandparents who are that old, so you can't talk to them about um, the Second World War, but you might talk to them about their own childhood. So you might ask them about where did they live? What was life like at home? Because it's very interesting to think about how people in the past lived differently from how we do today. What was school like? Do you remember being at school? What did you do with your friends at the weekends? What were your favourite games, toys, dolls, teddy bears? What was your favourite TV programme or radio programme? You may ask them, what is your what was your earliest memory? This is something um, my children asked me the other day. And in fact, one of my earliest memories, I have two very early memories. Um, the first I date from being about two. And I know this because 
very shortly afterwards we moved house so i can date it uh because we because of of where i remember the the um memory being and i was very little and i had got hold i had a little clockwork train and uh, it had a little key and i the key had a little pink string on it and i remember somehow this string got into my mouth and i remember coughing at night and my father rushing into my bedroom in the dark turning me upside down and literally shaking me and out came the key it's one of my earliest memories the other earliest memory i have is similarly in that house it was playing with the next door neighbor whose name i can't remember uh, but i remember she was a girl and she was out uh, just before dinner time and I think just before I was going to dinner to have dinner and she was out having come out after dinner uh, with a crust of bread and she shared her crust of bread with me. And that was something that is very, um, that sort of stayed with my, stayed in my memory for a long, long time. Uh, and your grandparents will have similar memories. Um, and the thing to, the thing to think about is if you're talking to them about their, their own life and their own childhood is think about how it's different from nowadays. Um, it may be that they also remember particular historical events. So they might be grandparents who were alive during the 1960s, um, the time of rock and roll and liberation. Uh, ask them about their experiences of that. Um, they may have experienced the, witnessed the, the first man on the moon. They may have experienced if living in the United Kingdom, the, the, the Falklands War, which was something that happened when I was a very small boy and it was a time of exceeding national crisis um, and, and sort of nationalism and is something that they may well remember. Um, likewise, something about the, the Vietnam War. Whatever country around the world you are living in, there will be, you know, particular historical events that have real importance to you wherever you are or to your grandparents wherever they are. So have a think about those those kinds of questions. Um, there is no right or wrong question to ask them. And in some ways, you know, you're starting a conversation. Now, the third thing to think about, so we've looked at who you're going to interview, the kinds of questions you're going to ask them, then think about how do you interview them. Now, because we can't be with grandparents in person, um, obviously, we're going to do this either by telephone, uh, preferably by Skype or Zoom or FaceTime or whatever, whatever you have so that you can actually see them face to face. And you you want to make this fun. You want to put them at their ease. You want to get them talking about their past and asking them these questions. And while they are talking, you can either record it. So if you're on a phone, it's very easy to press record. If you're on something like Skype or if, you're, if your parents have Zoom, uh, there's a little record function so you can record it and then you can listen back to it afterwards. You may also set your grandparents a series of questions that they can then you phone them up, tell them all about it, set them a series of questions and then they may talk to you about it and then maybe they want to write something down for you or they want to send you a a recording um, so that you have it for posterity in other words so that you have it uh, forever uh, as a memory of their their memories of the past um, but if you are interviewing them over the phone a good idea would be to have a piece of paper there and to then make notes about what they're about what they're saying 
And this leads us to our fourth point. What should you do with this information? Well, as I've said, you can either have them record something for you. You could record something yourself, so rather like a little podcast yourself. All you need is a, is a little phone or computer or tablet that has a, a record function on it, and you could speak into the microphone and record your own podcast about the memories of your grandparents. Uh, the other thing that you could do is you could write a report, which would be a really good exercise to do. You know, so it doesn't have to be particularly long. It can be if you want. You can write for pages and pages and pages, but it could just be a neat example of writing that, you know, think about all the things that they are talking about um, and think about it. Think about how you structure it, that it has a beginning uh, where you'd set the scene by telling the reader where the story takes place, who you're interviewing, you know, um, this is an interview. These are the memories of Grandpa Blogs, Grandma uh, Smith, uh, whoever it is. And then you put the date. Um, and then you might, if, if you ask them very nicely, you might put their, their age or their date of birth so that we know what they are, um, how old they are. So what sort of period we're talking about. Um, it would be interesting to find out where they've where they lived. Um, you know, what kind of, of, of um, part of the country or part of the world they live. Then you think about the, the middle part of the story, uh, giving an account of, of exactly what happened, what, what happened in their life. Um, you might even organise it in terms of, you know, different themes. So about, you know, where did you live? What was your house, your brothers and sisters, your, your parents, your games? your earliest memories, all of those kinds of things. And then at the end, you'd tell the reader, you'd reflect on it. So you'd tell the reader how this story makes sense to you. How does it, how does, how does their experience differ from yours? And that, I think that's something that would be, that would be very interesting. And one of the things that as historians we try and do is we try and look at the past as something that is very different from the present. Now, one very interesting thing for you to do on top of this is to record your own thoughts about what it's like being at home at the moment, what it's like not being at school, not being able to go out. Because in years to come, your grandchildren may ask you, you know, grandfather, grandmother, um, you know, what was it like? During the um, coronavirus crisis uh, in 2020, what do you remember about it? And so it would be fascinating to have some kind of record of what went on. And future generations of historians will be absolutely fascinated in capturing all of this data. Now, a very slight, um, a slight sort of um, variation on this. Um, over breakfast this morning, uh, my wife, who is, who is a teacher, um, an English teacher, not a historian, but was saying that she had heard uh, something on the radio about Kirsty Olsop, uh, who had suggested something quite similar about interviewing uh, grandparents as a very good way of keeping in touch with them. And one of the things that she said that you could talk to them about was about nature and about flowers. And she was inspired to do this because she'd taken her kids for a walk a walk in the countryside to go and relax, get some exercise. 
during these, this period when we're all housebound. And she asked them to name 10 flowers that they saw as they went round. And she said that they basically didn't know any more than four. And so having, having heard this, what she did was she then got them to phone up their grandparents and to ask them the names of these flowers that they'd taken pictures of. Because the countryside and nature that we have around us today is very different from the countryside of, say, 60 years ago. And that would be another interesting way to think about how the past is different from today. So there we are. I think that's absolutely terrific. Um, we would love you, Sam and I would love to hear from you about how you get on with these projects. Um, I think oral history is absolutely terrific. And as you all get older, and those of you who are older listening to this, will will think about how wonderful oral history is for telling us all sorts of things about the past. Now, the other project that I was going to talk to you about uh, was something that I did. So this is project number two, and this is a project about making a house. Now, the first, this comes in two parts. It's about your home and your family. And this was something that a colleague of mine, as I was saying, uh, Professor Dan Maudlin at the University of Plymouth put together for a project that we were doing with the Earl of Devon at Powderham Castle in Devon. Now, it's just outside of Exeter. Um, you should go there um, online because there's a wonderful website, but you should also go there and visit it uh, when we're all allowed out again because it's a terrific experience. They've got wonderful gardens that you can go and explore, wonderful house with all sorts of areas to explore. This was a project that we did there with the local school in Kenton, but I think it's something that you could do everywhere. Now, there are two parts, as I said. The first thing is to think about your own home. And what we want you to do is to draw a floor plan of the different rooms in the building where you are. So it may be that what you want to do is the downstairs. So you may have a dining room, a kitchen, a living room, a hallway. Maybe there's a, a study or an office. If it's a flat, there may well be bedrooms down there. Now, this kind of plan is something that architects make when they design buildings, or it's something that estate agents do when they are trying to sell houses and they're trying to show people who want to buy houses exactly what the house looks like. So they'll send them a plan. So the best idea is to... How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Use a piece of, of paper to plan this out, and then you can write it out in neat. But think about it as, a, as an oblong with a series of rooms. And then down the, down the right-hand side... You write, you do, do a number of, you write a list of who is in your family. So it may be uh, daddy, mummy, uh, you, brother and sister. There may be a dog. And each of them has a different colour circle. And then what you do is you think of a time of day in the house and you write that down. So it may be just before tea time or dinner time or whatever you call it in your household. And then you think about where people are in the house just before you have dinner in the evening. Um, and then you use your different colour dots for each person to show exactly where they are. So if it's a, a red dot, it may red dot for mummy or red dot for daddy. Mummy and daddy may be in the kitchen, uh, both cooking away. Uh, uh, you and your brother or sister may be in the living room watching television. So you do dots there. The dog may be in the dining room uh, sniffing around for food. There may be somebody else uh, elsewhere in the house. And the idea is to get you to think about how people use the different rooms in the house at different times for different functions or for different things. Um, so obviously, the parents in the kitchen are in there cooking. Um the children are in the living room um, watching television. And so what it tells you is about the difference between uh, parents and children at that time. If you, you could also do it for breakfast time. And it may be that at breakfast time, everyone is sitting around the kitchen table, all having their breakfast and nobody is anywhere else within the house. So this is something that gets you thinking about. This is something that gets you thinking about your own house. Now, in order to do this activity, you need plain paper and you need colour pens. You draw a floor plan of your home. You then decide on the time of day. So if it's in the morning, breakfast time, it could be in the middle of the day for lunch. It could be in the, in the evening when everyone's eaten, or it could be in the middle of the night when you're all asleep in your separate bedrooms. 
and then you add a colour dot for everyone in your house. Um, this is your little code, and then you label that mummy, daddy, um, you know, whoever whoever lives with you, brother and sister, and then you put these dots of your family in the room in each of the rooms. You can also add in things like sofas, chairs, tables, TVs, computers, sinks, dog beds, all sorts of things to make it to make it your to make it your home. And I think that's a brilliant way of thinking about your house and how you live there. Now, the next thing to do is to think about your historical house. Now, we were very lucky because we were allowed to work with the wonderful people at Powderham Castle in Devon. And if you go online, you can see, if you go to Powderham's website, Powderham, just Google Powderham Castle, go to their website and there will be a ground floor plan. And you can see the music room, the dining room, all sorts of things. What you will notice is that a castle like that is so much bigger than the house that you live in, uh, unless you are unless you are royalty or unless you are uh, a member of the landed gentry and live in an enormous place. Most people don't live in houses like that. You don't have to pick Powderham Castle. You could pick any historical house around you. There are National Trust properties. There are, you know, there's Hampton Court. And then the thing to do is using that plan, what you want to do then is... You want to draw the plan and think about how this compares to your house. You know, what are the what rooms are the same as in your house? Yeah, there may be bedrooms, there may be a dining room, maybe they're much bigger than yours. What are the extra or different rooms? And what might these different rooms be used for? How many of you have a music room, like at Powderham, which is this amazing music room full of fine art? Um, how many of you have an enormous library? In there, or how many of you have a long gallery, which is a place where people would have sort of walked um, up and down, and they would have had a an enormous collection of of famous paintings uh, on the walls. Now, having compared your own house to this house, the next thing to do is to make a model of one of the rooms within that house. Now, if you're picking Powderham Castle, you might pick some of the room, one of the rooms there, like the music room, the library, or the kitchen. They have a wonderful Victorian kitchen there. You can look at the images of the rooms on the Powderham website. Now, the thing that we want you to do is to produce a shoebox of this room. Um, you can you get your shoebox and you decorate the inside of your chosen room. You can use wallpaper, coloured paper, you can use pens, pencils, bits of carpet, all sorts of things. You make things from egg boxes. You can stick things. My daughters would love to do this. In fact, I'm going to get them to do this tomorrow um, because you can really go to town and you can satisfy every single creative impulse that you have in your bones, in your body. Make things out of card, whatever. And then you people it with figures. Uh, you could use Lego figures if you've got them. You could use Playmobil. Uh, you could use Sylvanian families, uh, which my daughters have. And these will represent the family or the servants. You can even draw cutout figures. That's quite a good idea. You could draw cutout figures out of card and then you could, you could dress them in different ways. You label the outside of your box, which tells us what room it is, who is in it and what they are doing 
and what time of day it is. If you pick your kitchen, for example, you know, who in a big castle is in the kitchen? It's not mummy and daddy doing the doing the cooking. It tends to be the servants. And which kinds of servants are there in there doing that? And you think about the if you were in the dining room, who who sits down at the dining room? It may be that what you have is the family seated around the dining table. There may also be, you know, all sorts of guests there. Um, and then servants come in and 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 serve uh, serve the food and keep everyone very happy. Um, now this is a this is a, a a way of you thinking about the different rooms within historical houses and how people how different people did different things in those particular spaces. And what it will give you is a sense of how people lived in the past in a way that is different from us. And the interesting thing about looking at somewhere like Powderham Castle, which is a castle that was lived in by very rich people, so um, uh, members of the aristocracy, the Courtney family, uh, so these are lords and ladies um, who live in a very different way and at a very different time from how we live today. So it will give you a really interesting perspective on the past. Now, so have a go at that. Take some pictures and Sam and I would love, would love to see what you get up to online. Now, finally, as I promised, I have my final thing for you to do, which is to do a your own histories of the unexpected. So this is the this is the third thing. Now this is something that our as I said our colleagues at Devonport High School for Boys did. And what they do every year, they have a week where they are off curriculum. They are off timetable and chill the kids there, the boys there can do all sorts of things, all sorts of exciting things that are designed to enrich the curriculum. And one of the things that the history staff did was they used histories of the unexpected to do uh, a really creative activity. Now, for those of you who are new to histories of the unexpected, the idea behind histories of the unexpected is that everything, and we mean everything, has its own history and that those histories link together in unexpected ways. So, for example, you could think about the history of the window. And how do you think about the window in lots of different ways? The window could be about Kristallnacht. So those of you uh, familiar with Nazi Germany, this was the time when all the shop windows of the Jews in Germany were stoned. So it tells you all about German Nazi attitudes towards Jewish people during the time of the Holocaust. It could also be about defenestration, so throwing people out of the windows. And this happened very famously in 1618 with the defenestration of Prague, when two imperial regents and their secretary were hurled out of the top story window of a building right in the centre of Prague. Um, and this was something that started the Thirty Years' War. Or it could be window taxes. So the idea that the way in which the wealthy paid more tax was by the number of windows they had within their within their house. Or it could be arrow slits, 
which get you to medieval castles. Or it could be stained glass windows, which get you into religious history. So do you see, do you see what we mean? It's, it's a way in which the history of the window can be looked at in all sorts of different ways. Now, what we would like you to do is do your own histories of the unexpected. And there are two ways that you can do this. One is you can go to our podcast, uh, historiesoftheunexpected.com. You'll find it anywhere if you type it into any... Well, you're listening to it now, so you know exactly where the podcast is. Listen to any episode. Listen to it very carefully. Listen and write and take down all the links between topics and how it has affected or been significant to historic events. If we take our example of the window, when we talked about the history of the window, it might have been about HMS Victory, it might have been about uh, the defenestration of Prague, it might have been about um, the Reformation. So you link all of those, so you draw a little spider diagram of all of these things. The other thing that you could do is not just listen to a podcast or read a chapter in one of our books, um, but you could think up your own histories of the unexpected. Think up your own topic. It may be that what you want to do is the history of, um, I don't know, the history of the signature. Um, and you can think about the signature in all sorts of different ways. You could think about the way in which Henry VIII's signature was a very important way of exercising power. So the fact that the king signed documents was a way of authenticating them. You could think about people who are unable to sign their name. Did you know that the parents of the grammar school educated William Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, one of the greatest writers of his time, if not of all time, his parents were in fact unable to sign their own names. And we know that because of two property documents that survive. And if you have a look at them very carefully, above the paper tag and seal on each of the documents, you'll see written in the hand of a clerk, the mark of John Shakespeare and the mark of Mary Shakespeare, William Shakespeare's parents. And then in the middle, you've got their crude marks. So mark is either a cross or a symbol. It's not a signature. Um, you could also think about uh, this in terms of um, Admiral Lord Nelson's signature and how this changed over time. Um, I don't know whether you knew, but in 1797 at the Battle of Santa Cruz, Nelson lost his arm. He suffered an injury, it had to be amputated, and he then had to write with his left hand and his signature changed. Um, you can also think about forgery and forging people's signature. And there are very famous uh, forgers in history. One, one uh, very famous uh, forger was a man called Joseph Cosey, uh, and he forged Abraham Lincoln's signature. And, and he, in the end, he got caught for it. And very, very famous uh, indeed. Um, but what we want you to do is, once you're armed with your plan, your notes for this, um, so the way in which you've got a topic, it then goes off, in, you then think about all the different uh, ways that you can link these topics together and how they've been affected by uh, a significant historic events. We then want you to produce uh, some kind of animation uh, using, uh, using a, a sh big sheet of paper so that you draw uh, a spider diagram 
and you might have at the at the center windows and then you have all sorts of arrows coming off showing exact all the different ways that you can think about it or if you're think if you're feeling really ingenious you may want to record your own podcast and this of course is very simple indeed rather like with the oral history that we were talking about earlier on um all you need is something like a smartphone uh and you can you can talk into into the smartphone it's actually what i'm doing here at the moment for ease of editing during these times uh, i am simply i've downloaded a an app onto my iphone and i am talking into a microphone and it is simply recording it and then i press stop and then you can upload it to wherever you want as an mp4 file um so hopefully this will give you some ideas of to have some fun with now before i go i wanted to end uh yesterday we ended with a tudor child's glove and um a Tudor Child's mitten from the Museum of London. So it was a mitten uh, that was found in fin Finsbury area of London and, and you know, presumably lost by a Tudor child. Now, I wanted to share something with you from one of my favourite uh, Tudor children. And this is a boy called James Bassett. Now, the history of Tudor children is often very, very difficult to write indeed because very few documents relating to children uh, survived for the 16th century. Um, however, there is a wonderful collection of letters uh, from this schoolboy, James Bassett. Now, he is the son of a woman called Honour Lady Lyle. Now, she and her husband are living over in Calais, where her husband is Lord Deputy of the Garrison in Calais. And... Um, there's a big collection called the Lyle Letters, uh, which uh, survive uh, at the National Archives in Kew. You can go along and see the originals. They were edited and collected together many, many years ago by a wonderful woman called Muriel St. Clair Byrne. Uh, brilliant, brilliant name. Um, but she's collected together all of these all of these letters, uh, and they are terrific to read. But I just wanted to read you this letter from the 28th of February, 1538, from James Bassett to his mother, Lady Lyle. He's away staying in at school in Paris, and what he's doing is he's writing home to his mother in Calais, telling her that basically he's not being treated very well. Now, you listen to this and you think about what a precocious uh, 16th century schoolboy we have here. He writes to his mother as madam, so that it's, it's a very formal relationship between uh, an upper-class aristocratic mother and her son. Madam, this shall be to advertise you that I have written certain letters to you but it hath been sore against my will, and because my master, in other words, his teacher, hath dictated them and enforced me to the writing thereof. Very sorry I am that he should have such power over me as to take and keep from me the letters you send me. So he's basically claiming that his school teacher is keeping the letters that his mother sends to him, so that I can neither have sight of them nor answer unless it is so please him. So in other words, he can't write to his mother unless his teacher says he can. If I should be ill-handled, in other words, mistreated or sick, ill, I could not inform you, 
for here there are some with me, in other words, some of his friends, who have been ill a month. Notwithstanding, he hath compelled them to write that they are merry and are in good health. In other words, some of his friends have been ill, but the teacher has asked them to say that they're very well, very happy, and everything's fine. Wherefore, madam? So, um, in other words, mum, I would have you know that all letters which I send you be false. So, in other words, there's nothing true about them and not written of my own will. In other words, I haven't chosen to write them if they be not closed with my seal, as you see this one is. In other words, when he, when he finished the letter, he sealed it up and then he put a blob of wax over the opening and then put his signet ring, in other words, a ring that he would have worn that has his, his own personal crest on it, and that would authenticate the letter. So it's a bit like a signature. And if he did that, his mother would then know that he had written the letter himself. So it's a bit like he's thinking of himself a bit like uh, a Tudor spy. No more at this present, save that I may be humbly recommended to you and to my Lord, my father, praying God to give you good life and long. Written this 28th of February at Paris by your most humble and obedient son, James Bassett. Now, what do you think about that? Your humble and obedient son. How many of you uh, would write a letter uh, to your own parents in that way? Okay, well, that's it from me. We've been going for about 40 minutes. I hadn't planned to be uh, on for so long, but that's terrific. Uh, so hopefully there you have three excellent projects that you can get your get stuck into. There's the oral history project with your grandparents. There is the historical house shoebox project. And there is Be a his Young Historian of the Unexpected Project. Um, you can follow me on at James Daybell. You can follow Sam on at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on Twitter at UnexpectedPod. You can find everything that we are doing on our website, which is historiesoftheunexpected.com. Uh, we will hear from you soon. Goodbye. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.